Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Hello, hello. Thank you for coming. We are thrilled to have everybody here tonight. Um, we will, you know, I just want to thank everybody for coming and supporting independent bookstores and hearing about all the amazing things that they are doing because these people are truly amazing people. Um, so without, you know, really going into details, I'll let Emily do that. She will be moderating. She's our, one of our managers here at the store. Um, we do events here all the time at Skylight Books, and I'll let you guys just see that online. But um, we just wanted to say thank you for your support, and thanks to all the wonderful panelists for being here. So I'm going to hand it over, and we'll get started, because it's a little late. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Chris. And we have refreshments over here afterwards for everybody. Yeah, we got refreshments over here. He's What he has in his hand is an events flyer, so that's how you can uh, find out what else is happening at Skylight for the rest of the month. Uh, so I'm Emily. Uh, I've been at Skylight for five years now, uh, and I've been in books since 2004, which probably makes me one of the younger people in this room and on this panel. Um, but before we actually get started on the panel part of it, uh, I have an audience participation question that I'm going to let you mull over while we're talking and then after uh, after we've had a little time to chit chat then we may come back to you guys I want to give you enough fair warning for that um, so the question that is is going to be posed to you and that has actually already been posed on Facebook and Twitter and people have been responding so you have a little pressure to, to catch up with the interwebs um, the question being what is it that makes you say, now that is a good bookstore? Um, what is the first thing that pops into your head when you, you know, if you had a blank slate, walked into an empty room that was going to become a bookstore, what is the first thing you would put in there? It could be, you know, great shelves, it could be a tree, it could be, you know, it could, it, it could be the staff, it could be whatever, whatever the first thing that you would want to put in there. So I want you to think about that, and then uh, we're going to come back to it in a little bit. Um, and... I also um, wanted to sort of start with a couple of little anecdotes, uh, and both of them sort of center around this month and, in fact, this day and tomorrow. Um, the first, and, and, and I think that they sort of illustrate what we hope to accomplish in this panel a bit, um, talking about the strengths of bookstores. The first is that um, a couple of weeks ago I was talking to one of our oldest customers, both in age and in uh, length of loyalty, and she said to me, you know, I've been seeing all of these books that are coming out about the 10-year anniversary of 9-11, and I was thinking about it a lot and, uh, and, and remembered that when I heard about the news 10 years ago, my first thought was, 
I should go to Skylight. And it gave me goosebumps to hear her say that just because it sort of demonstrated how um, important this space is for, um, for the community, for ideas, for emotions, for all sorts of things. Um, so it really um, made me, you know, warmed my heart to hear that I wasn't even here in 2001, but uh, it, it really meant a lot. And then uh, three years ago tomorrow um, is the anniversary of the day that David Foster Wallace died. So this is sort of jam-packed time period in terms of the literary world. Um, and the same thing happened when, when we heard the news, you know, we had staff members who weren't working coming into the store. We made phone calls to people who weren't working. We had customers who called us and said, did you hear, did you hear about David Foster Wallace? And, um, you know, that to me is another example of the bookstore simply just being involved and immersed uh, in the community, more so than simply selling books. Uh, and I think that that's what this whole panel really, um, these people are, are uh, definitely experts in that realm. And so I wanna, just as a way of, uh, I'll, I'll sort of briefly name, introduce all of the people who are here and then sort of pose a question that will allow them to tell you a little bit about their projects and their stores and, and whatnot. Um, so to my left, we've got David Kuypen and Colleen, who are the, the faces of Libros Schmibros uh, in Boyle Heights and currently also in the Hammer Museum. Uh, they have a pop-up that I would love to hear them talk to you about. Um, Next to them, we have got Andrew Ladies, uh, who's the, the author of Rebel Bookseller, which is sort of the, the focal point of, uh, of this. And how many, how many stores do you have under your belt? Four, five, six? Five. And five and six coming. So he's, uh, he, he knows his way around opening a bookstore. So we'll uh, pick his brain a little bit about that. And then next to him, we've got Josh Spencer, who is the owner of The Last Bookstore in downtown Los Angeles, uh, which opened in 2009. And if you haven't been there, if you haven't been to any of these in LA, you absolutely must, because all of them are worth the trip. Um, so the question I'm going to pose to you guys as a way of sort of uh, having you introduce yourselves a little bit more is, um, when and where um, you decided to open your stores. So not only like, when, what was the decision to open the store that you have now? Uh, what was the decision of where you decided to do it? How you, um, you know, got in tune and in touch with the community? That kind, of, that kind of thing. Use that as sort of a springboard to tell us more about what you're doing. So. I think... I decided to open Libros Schmibros at the corner of First and Cummings, 2000 East First Street between the Mariachi Plaza and Soto Street Gold Line stations because there were all these strangers in the middle of um, <laughs> where I was living looking at all my books on my shelves and I figured it, 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 the seemly thing to do would be to call it a bookshop um, and a lending library. Um, I, was, uh, I had come home from a job with the NEA uh, to liberate my thousands of books from the job before that which was book critic at the San Francisco Chronicle. I was ferrying books back from a storage unit in Agoura Hills to Boyle Heights where I had taken it into my head to settle and then the library down the street, the Benjamin Franklin Branch Library, the first public library in the L.A. public library system because that's where the mule car line from downtown used to stop, uh, posted reduced hours. It was going to close Mondays for the first time in its history. So that very Monday it was going to close, July the 19th, I made my deadline to open. Um, and so... Uh, 
I did, and people showed up, and they haven't stopped. So I'm deeply, <laughs> deeply grateful. Hi. Um, I joined David in the effort of Libro Schmibros uh, after he had officially opened it. Uh, we met working on a separate project, and I started going down to Libros to continue work on that project and was thrilled with it. I came from a background of 20 years of college and university teaching of English, and what I found at Libros were people uh, loving their books. I mean, I remember one of the first days I was there, uh, there was a teenager with his earbuds in who was curled up reading The Wasteland for two hours, and it made a huge impression on me and I realized that it was a community without particularly any access to books especially because of the Monday closure of the libraries and I'd sp I've spent my life getting books into people's hands I mean in one sense I suppose I've been the biggest book pusher and I'm going to use that word of all um, uh, saying to my classes I'm not here to teach I'm here to proselytize you're here to fall in love with this literature and so you know go buy this 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 and this and we're going to sit down and read it and here it was happening very organically on the corner of first and Cummings and it was it really resonated for me because my family is three generations Boyle Heights and Lincoln Heights and I grew up in Lincoln Heights and was working on a book about the East Side uh, quite separate from anything collegiate or university Aryan if that's a word or scholarly um, and it was a, a, a work of passion and um, guess what um, there was this uh, wonderful nascent um, bookshop and library and so uh, I've it's been I'd say um, a collaborative effort since um, we'll switch microphones now so that we don't stretch the court too far um, my name is Andy Latees and uh, I have been running the store at the Eric Carl Museum of Picture Book Art since November of 2002. Now, Eric Carl is the author of The Very Hungry Caterpillar and many other children's books. And uh, the Eric Carl Museum is located on the campus of Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts. Now, how I came to be running that store, uh, when I was a teenager, uh, freshman in college, I got involved in children's theater. I was cast as the old green grasshopper in James and the Giant Peach, <laughs> and subsequently as the humbug in the Phantom Tollbooth. And I became the producer of the Eldermatt Children's Theater Company. I was the, uh, the white rabbit in Alice in Wonderland, and many other uh, marvelous roles. And I continued working with children uh, uh, as a children's theater actor touring the, the country with Child's Play Touring Theater, which performs stories and poems written by children. And uh, in the mid-80s, I co-founded a children's bookstore in Chicago with my wife, who was a bookstore manager. And um, so we had the children's bookstore for 11 years. We did a deal with Chicago Children's Museum, and we ran a privately owned store that was a concession with the museum for seven years. And then I moved from that store to Amherst to open the store at the Eric Carl Museum of Picture Book Art. So I had a whole sequence of children's bookstores and also a children's book fair company. And um, that's how I ended up running the store at the Eric Carl Museum. I became immersed in children's literature. I know a lot about children's books. And uh, I wrote my book uh, around the time that I moved to Amherst uh, because I'd been so involved with the book industry. I'd become a, uh, an activist inside of the committee structure of the American Booksellers Association. I was, I was there when they were secretly preparing the lawsuits against the big 
big publishers and and uh, my stores in Chicago were very strongly affected by the growth of uh, Barnes and Noble and Borders and Super Crown in the mid 90s and while all the special deals were being cut with them so uh, I had a lot to say by uh, uh, early 2002 and the book came out in 2005 in the first edition and uh, I actually co-founded the company which published it uh, Vox Pop and we opened a bookstore in Brooklyn which was a bookstore cafe performance art center and that lasted for six years uh, opening at 7 a.m. every day closing usually at 2 a.m. so we had children's story hours and we had open mics and we had uh, it was just a, a wonderful operation and uh, uh, in the midst of that I managed to get a deal to move Rebel Bookseller to a stronger publisher, Seven Stories Press, and now it's out in a revised edition. So that's why I'm here. I'm on book tour uh, in on the West Coast. Uh, hi, I'm Josh. Um, can you hear me? Um, uh, I sold used books online for probably a decade, um, uh, mostly all around LA. And then uh, Living downtown, uh, I kept having people ask me to open up a bookstore because there wasn't any bookstore in downtown LA at the time, uh, and uh, so it didn't, you know, it didn't really work out for a few years. I tried to do it. I read Rebel Bookseller, and I was all ready to rent a space, and it fell through. And then uh, another space opened up a few years later, right across the street from my loft, and. Uh, I couldn't say no to that. It was pretty convenient. Um, and so we opened up that store, which was just a little 1,000-square-foot store um, in 2009, right before Christmas. And, uh, and then a year and a half later, three months ago, we just moved into a, a 10 times as big space <laughs> a block away. Um, and uh, I think that's pretty much it. I'm, I'm not one for a lot of words. So. Is that it? Yeah. What, else was, what else did you ask? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, how you decided downtown, obviously that was Oh, okay. Right, I mean, that's, that it. was where I lived, and I'm not one to take risks. I'm not a, a risk-taking businessman, so I knew the community. I knew that people wanted it, and it just seemed like a, a no-risk sort of thing to do. Um, um, you know, I'd been there for six years at that point by the time I opened, so. Tell us a little um, about, because you guys do a lot of, uh, of events and sort of, right. you know, DJs um, and all sorts of things. Yeah, we do, we do theater, live music, uh, comedy, readings, poetry, you know, whatever anybody wants to pitch to us, basically, we'll consider doing, so. Uh, it's sort of become a big community space down there where a lot of people just sort of hang out there like they normally would at a, a library. Um, just doing creative things, you know, people have their media, their little business meetings or creative meetings, there's a knitting group, there's, you know, there's a lot of room for people to do different things. Uh, we just opened a vinyl record store as well in there, um, like three days ago, four days ago. Um, so that's doing pretty well too, so. Uh, yeah, just, it's sort of an organic creative space. You know, it's still in transition and process. We're still figuring out what we're doing because it's so much bigger than what we were doing before. And, um, but, yeah, so far so good. What's it called? So, the last bookstore. Uh, right now we're all just used books, yeah. Used, used vinyl, used books. Uh, we have new magazines, but that's about it. <laughs> so. Um, I would be curious to hear, because sort of the, 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 old, the old media machine, uh, you know, likes to, to beat the dead horse that, uh, that, that bookstores are dying, bookstores are dying, oh. And we know in Los Angeles that we've definitely lost or are about to lose 
new bookstores and ones that have been around forever. So that's certainly a reality. But the other reality is that your stores have both opened in the last couple of years. We've had stories. We've ha opened an Echo Park. We have Diesel, which opened a new space and closed an old space and then reopen is reopening their that space in Ven uh, Malibu. Malibu. Um, you know, so I think that that demonstrates that there is, um, you know, certainly a literary community that is uh, is is not going to go down without a fight, as it were. Um, so. I, uh, one of the quotes that uh, is in the new introduction to Andrew's book uh, is from a friend of mine, Jessica, who just opened a store in Brooklyn called Greenlight Books. Uh, she said, she's, she said, for a while I was really interested in the future of books. Now I'm more interested in the present of books. Um, and so I, I would be curious to see whether you guys have any um, sort of specific developments or uh, whether it's within your own communities or, um, you know, sort of in the, the, the book world as a whole that are particularly exciting to you guys. Um. Well, let me start by... Uh, telling a story about my editor on this book. Um, my editor, Veronica Liu, uh, at Seven Stories Press, uh, when, when she was presented this book by the publisher, Dan Simon, uh, with the idea that maybe Seven Stories Press would like to republish it, she revealed that she had already read it three times. She actually bought it at Vox Pop, which was the store that I helped to found, and where she also met her boyfriend. So she said, I want to edit the second edition of Rebel Bookseller. And so I, I worked with her, with a fan, and over the course of developing the new material, and it's about a third new material, uh, apparently something kind of clicked for her, and uh, she was active on uh, in an arts organization in the neighborhood where she lived, which is Washington Heights, uh, which is the upper part of Manhattan around you know, 150th Street, 175th Street. And uh, she said that when she read that chapter about Jessica Stockton successfully raising $300,000 and opening a bookstore in Brooklyn, she thought, you know, what she did was just, she just opened her mouth and she ended up getting a bookstore. And so Veronica, uh, in a meeting with uh, this arts organization where she was helping to organize an arts walk, she said, you know, I've always been thinking about opening a bookstore around here. We should have a bookstore around here. And the director of the arts organization said, well, you should talk to one of our sponsors of the art walk, Vantage Realty, because I know they have a lot of empty spaces. And so she introduced uh, uh, Veronica to uh, Vantage Realty, who said, yes, you can have a space for one month during this, uh, this arts program if you can put a bookstore there for a month, a pop-up bookstore. 176th and Broadway, very busy neighborhood, a, lo a lot of Dominican immigrants uh, and, and uh, many different ethnic groups. And um, so it was a former cell phone store that had been empty for a year. And uh, they filled it up with remainders from Seven Stories Press and also with lots of books on consignment from small presses that are based in New York. And they put out the word on the internet and through friends networks and people started sending them books from all over the country on consignment. And it took them, I believe, I think they had about a week uh, to put this bookstore together. They got bookshelves from an artist's reuse warehouse and uh, they programmed it very, very heavily, the way you're describing. I mean, they, had, they have op the open mic nights and readings and concerts and children's events, and it was very, very popular. And people came in, the, the opening uh, uh, day, Rebecca and I were performing, uh, and uh, people were coming in and saying, we've been waiting for this for 27 years. How come we never had a book? We ne why didn't we ever get a bookstore before? 
And uh, uh, after their month expired, they got a three-month extension from Vantage Realty. Again, no rent. It's run by volunteers who live in the neighborhood. And a lot of the books that the people who lived in the neighborhood had self-published or had had published before, and they had some copies in their house, they brought them out there, they're selling. And uh, so I think that this is the most exciting thing that I am hearing now is uh, that there are spaces available and there are landlords that are realizing, you know, better to put something in there, even if it doesn't pay rent, than to have it sit empty. And people are really uh, coalescing around these neighborhood bookstores. Uh, one thing that gives me hope uh, about book selling uh, is the hopeless economy because uh, people can't get jobs doing what they're supposed to do anymore. Uh, you know, be a doctor, be a lawyer, they can't afford the student loans, so they're stuck doing what they want to do, which in many cases turns out to be opening bookstores. Um, I mean, you know, the, the cliche used to be, uh, and you probably got a lot of this, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a bookstore, people would go, oh man, I always wanted to open a bookstore. Um, and now that and that used to be me, and now that I've got one, uh, or or we have one, the Libro Schmibros uh, Cabal has one. Um, people are coming up to me, but they're not saying, "Oh man, I always wanted to open a bookstore." They're saying, "I want to open a bookstore in." Highland Park, how do I do it? I want to open a pop-up on Abbott Kinney in Venice. How do I do it? Um, that gives me a lot of hope. Uh, the the pop-up, uh, I mean, that's kind of a, a freakish anomaly, but um, the Hammer Museum noticed us because the artist who lives behind me um, it was doing a project with them, and their director of public engagement said, wow, this, this, this might drive a little traffic into our lobby at Wilshire and Westwood, which is the heaviest traffic intersection in the city you know out on the asphalt but inside maybe not so much and um, and and I had two really stupid conditions one was I wasn't gonna do it unless we could stay open every minute in Boyle Heights that we were gonna be in Westwood for those six weeks and the other was they wanted me to do events and I said great but um, if, if I want to do as many events in Boyle Heights as we do in Westwood and like idiots they went for it and I just ran before they could change their minds and we've managed to put on a couple of good ones and there's many more to come and I'm gonna festoon your front counter with uh, calendars in hopes that some of you turn out because the west side is not as far or as superficial as you think it is. <laughs> Right, there's hope on the west side. A little LA politics for you. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's it's kind of an amazing time actually to be involved in in the book world. And uh, you know, in addition to, I mean, this is this is going to be sort of like a like a, 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 a shift in gears, as it were. But uh, I think that there's a lot for discussion. Um, specifically, uh, Andrew, in your book, there's there's a lot of talk about. Um, you know, the rise of the chains and then the rise of Amazon. And that's certainly something that has had a huge impact with the chains in terms of the last 20 years of book selling and with Amazon in terms of the last 10 years for sure. Um, so I think that I think that there's sort of a couple of places and room for, for discussion there. First, I kind of wanted to ask um, Josh, as somebody who sold books online for 10 years first and then jumped into having a, a as they call bricks and mortar bookstore um, you know first of all uh, while you were selling books online during the big rise of Amazon uh, you know I'm, I'm curious as to whether your uh, perspective on 
the, uh, the, the strength of Amazon is the same as mine as like any bookseller who, you know, like as a new seller of new books, there's, there's very much an animosity that I can't really deny. I'd be curious whether you share that or whether you have a different perspective having started in that realm and then moved into having a space. Hello. Um, yeah, I definitely have a different perspective. Um, you know, I sort of got into book selling by accident, uh, just as a matter of survival. Like, I, you know, I wasn't able to get a job out of college, and my grandmother gave me a bunch of cookbooks, and I put them on Amazon, and and was able to pay my rent. You know, um, so for me, it was a lifesaver, and uh, I just kept doing that, and I couldn't. I kept thinking, well, this has got to end at some point, but I just kept going out and finding books that I could resell online, and you know, it became a full-time job. And um, you know, there's probably 500 other guys in LA doing that right now that you know are able to pay their bills because of Amazon. So, you know, I've seen it as a really positive, good thing, just for a lot of people who love books and and don't have any other way to to make money. Um, and so, you know, I did that for a long time, and. Um, you know, gradually I just sort of would, I would get a lot of books that were really great books, but I couldn't necessarily sell them online for very much. And and so I just got to thinking, well, like, you know, tons and tons of books out there, you know, most fiction, most classics, that sort of thing, you're not going to make any money selling them online because there's so many copies out there. But you could open a bookstore and, and you know, people would love to ha have those copies again. Um, and so that was sort of got what got, what got me started in thinking, you know, I could open up a bricks and mortar. And um, it just kept going from there. And now it's gotten to the point where, you know, where, you know, I sell more books in the store than I do online, so I'm, you know, sort of moving away from online and, and more to the traditional bricks and mortar, um, which surprised me. I didn't think it was going to be like that. Um, but people are just so ecstatic to have a used bookstore in downtown LA that they're just flocking to it. And, you know, we, we try to keep our prices lower than Amazon and lower than eBooks, so we're not really competing. Or we are competing, but we, we, over, we, uh, we beat them, I guess, uh, by competing that way. Um, you know, it keeps people happy and keeps people buying. So, um, so yeah, for me, Amazon, you know, I know a lot of people have negative ideas about it, and especially new booksellers, and I definitely can uh, empathize with that. Um, but for me, you know, I only have positive, uh, positive relationship with it, and uh, you know, it kept me from, you know, it kept me, it kept the roof over my head for ten years. So I can't really speak poorly about it. Uh, well, and, and you know, like the the one of the conversations that's been happening lately is the sales tax um, referendum, and there's updates and things that we could certainly talk about. But I'd almost rather not in this discussion. Um, but we can, and that's certainly in the limelight uh, and on the front pages of the newspapers. Um, but one of the the sort of tactics that ends up happening in states that are having these sales tax fights are that is that Amazon is cut off their affiliates. And I know that reselling used books online isn't quite the same as the affiliate program, um, but that's something where you know people refer business to Amazon and then get a little chunk of change back as an affiliate. And that's something that they've been uh, sort of cutting off in an effort to um, not have a presence in a state and, and then sort of having that, that as a, as a um, bargaining chip in, in this whole sales tax fight. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, the um, I'd, I'd be curious to hear Andrew and maybe, I don't know if you guys have any perspective on it as well, um, sort of the way that the battlefield has changed recently um, in terms of, uh, you know, versus the chains, versus Amazon, versus online selling, versus new, versus old, you know, um, sort of... Uh, 
more specifically for me, I know that I um, sort of end up feeling like I almost have more in common with some of the chains now than I ever used to, uh, in a way. Uh, I mean, um, you know, the, the, the sales tax fight and a lot of the challenges are things that um, not only Barnes & Noble, but also Target and also Walmart happen to fall on the same side as I do on, which is really, really weird for me. Um, you know, all of a sudden they also are in support of these sales tax referendums that are requiring or attempting to require Amazon to collect sales tax. And, uh, and, and that feels very strange to me to be on the same side when I'm so used to being adversarial. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm wondering whether, you know, the, the, the battleground has shifted, you know, I don't ever like to talk about enemies per se, but um, you know, what what are the most significant challenges and who are our potential allies? Well, one of the things that I try to do in Rebel Bookseller is provide a historical perspective about the book industry, which is interesting because a lot of people don't really are, aren't aware there is a history to the book industry, and of course, there's you know the book industry's been around for thousands of years, and uh, so that uh, there's you know what happened in the Roman era, and I don't talk about that in my book, but. Certainly what happened in the last 40 years, I'm very interested in what the, what the larger patterns have been. And what you just described is it's, it's so fascinating and so delightful to see the emergence of new bricks and mortar used bookstores in a marketplace where so many used bookstores were wiped out by Amazon because that has created a ground in which you can open a used bookstore. Back in the uh, in the 90s, the uh, used booksellers uh, generally were using uh, websites like BiblioFind. Now, I had friends in Chicago who were doing extremely well selling used books on BiblioFind. BiblioFind charged 3%. They took 3% when you sold a book. Well, Amazon bought BiblioFind in the late 90s and initially pledged to the thousands of used booksellers who were using BiblioFind that they were going to maintain 3% as what they took. But they raised their, their percentage over and over to 15%. Mm -hmm. And so when you enter a, a, mar a world in which you know, the, the player that you're, is your partner is taking 15%, you don't necessarily question that. Although I think that A. Libris takes less. They take more like 8%, don't they? So, so the, um, and this is the thing is that there are, that once the, once the world has changed, people who enter the field take that as, as a given. Now, at the moment, uh, for, for many, many years, uh, the online companies like Amazon had a sales tax uh, exemption that was, in some ways, it was a de facto exemption. It meant that no one was fighting against them. Because in the U.S. Congress, there was this idea that the online economy had to be nurtured. This was where the future of the American economic was growth was going to be. You remember this in the 90s, there was all this talk about how uh, we were in the information revolution and now the economy was going to just expand and expand. The, the Clinton years, you know, the, 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 the rules of the economy had just changed forever and we were into an, uh, an expansion that was going to go on forever. This was the internet bubble, of course. During that uh, time frame, the idea that there would be no sales tax was designed to nurture the growth of online internet business so that we could be enter this world of infinite expansion. And now things have really changed. People really understand. And Amazon, of course, is much, much larger. Amazon controls a quarter of the trade book business right now. Uh, Amazon is a company that does uh, half of its business 
is non-book items, and half of its business is book is books. So Amazon has is now understood to be, you know, very very large, and to have plenty of money, and they don't need to be nurtured anymore in the way that they maybe needed to be nurtured 10 years ago. And so a lot of people's opinions have shifted, and that's why there are, what, six states that have passed laws that say Amazon has to collect sales tax. And in these states, Amazon has shut off its affiliates and is trying to, and they play games like in South Carolina, where the, uh, the, the, the governor, Mark Stanford, said, we're never going to collect sales tax from you. And Amazon said, great, we'll build a warehouse there that employs 9,000 people and then Mark Sanford got in trouble with his Argentinian mistress and he resigned and the new uh, governor said no 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 Amazon we need to, we we're we're broke we need sales tax money from Amazon and Amazon said oh and they passed it in the legislature and Amazon said oh and uh, uh, so Amazon pulled out of South Carolina and then the legislature reversed it and so Amazon said oh we're back did you want to talk about that? I, we, I'm just curious. Amazon probably gets uh, part of all the breaks it gets because they have one or more lobbyists in state houses and in Washington pushing for it. Do independent booksellers, does the ABA have a lobbyist, even a part-time yeah. lobbyist? Oh, yes. yes. Yeah? The director of the American Booksellers Association, Orrin Tyker, uh, has an experience, you know, came out of Washington. He came out as a lobbyist, essentially. He came to the American Booksellers Association to uh, launch uh, ab fee back in the early 90s. So he is the right person to have doing this. He's very, very interested in this. And that's been a big push to the American Booksellers Association. And I also know that uh, the SCIBA and the NCIBA, which are the Northern and Southern California Independent Booksellers Association have been working with a lobbyist on this most recent push. Um, as far as I know, Hut Landon uh, is in Northern California, and he's been, you know, very, very knowledgeable and, uh, and you know, putting himself out there. And I'm pretty sure that they've been working with a lobbyist in the California state legislature as but, well. But these jobs that Amazon promises to states, like for instance, the way they were negotiating with California, they offered, "We'll give you 5,000 jobs. We'll put a warehouse in your in here if you'll back away from this sales tax collection provision." And um, I would just like to point out that 5,000 jobs could be generated if you opened 600 more bookstores in California, okay? And I figured this out just the other day. Okay, to open 600, to, to do, if you took the $200 million that Amazon owes in sales tax from last year that they will not collect, that $200 million could be used to capitalize bookstores that did about $600 million a year in business. It would essentially triple the number of bookstores in California and bring it back to 1991 levels. And it would produce 5,000 jobs. And the jobs that it produced would not be picking and packing in a gigantic Amazon warehouse. It'd be working in bookstores like this that'd be scattered all over the country, uh, all over the state. So it is not a good offer to take Amazon up on their on this gigantic warehouse that they're saying they'll, you know, $8 an hour, 5,000 jobs, wow, working the assembly line. So, um, no, I think that a lot of people understand now that Amazon behaves like a bully. You know, they've got this, this reputation, and it's not like when you started working with them. Most people didn't think that. Now people are kind of confused about their behavior, I think. I think. Well, and, and another trend that, that confuses me, but that I have, you know, sort of conflicting feelings on has to do with, with e-books and digital reading. And whenever anyone comes into the store and asks me uh, about e-readers and what it is that they, you know, how can I support you guys and still read on my Kindle? And I say, you said the bad word K. There are a lot of e-readers that you can use um, that you can support us through and that you can purchase e-books through our website. Um, but so it, you know, I have a friend, Jen, who works at a bookstore in Brooklyn who uh, wrote a column 
column and did a bunch of research on buying an e-reader and then posted it and you know essentially you know the usability the functionality the the you know ways that you actually make your purchase and she came down and said you know in my opinion and I trust her opinion she said the nook is the best product out there you know the color nook the whatever and so you know like I find myself willing to recommend a product that is a Barnes and Noble product but as a way of you know getting an e-reader that is user-friendly and that you can get your content through Skylight if you choose to um, so it's you know that's kind of an interesting set of of um, of, of alliances and recommendations where you know somebody who I trust has tried a lot of things out it's not dissimilar from my coworkers who have read books that they highly recommend and I say oh well, I haven't read it but Chris loved it you know I haven't bought a nook but my friend Jen loved it and you can get it from Barnes and Noble and you can use it to buy your content from us so that's another way that the landscape is kind of shifting um, you know is that I'm totally willing to do that and it doesn't feel weird to me um, So the question was, uh, as used bookstore owners, have you thought about uh, offering e-books to your customers in some way? Um, I haven't at all. Um, I kind of have a different perspective on e-books where, you know, I, I'm as much into music as I am into books, and I've sort of seen the complete destruction of CDs <laughs> the last few years through MP3s. Um, and I tend to think that the sort of idea that you know you can distribute ebooks through bookstores and it'll help you make money and still keep you alive, I sort of think that's just a transitional thing that it might work for a few years, but in time it's gonna it's gonna completely flip the other way where it's gonna be all ebooks. I'm kind of a I don't know. I've just seen what happened to music, and I, I think it's gonna go the exact same way um, with books. Um, and I think books. I think books will always be around. They've been around for thousands of years. So I don't think they're just going to disappear. But it's going to come become much more of a um, sort of a collector collector's market, sort of a vinyl record sort of market, where it's people who really appreciate the artifact and the ritual of flipping through pages, and people who really appreciate the aesthetic appeal of books and not just the content. Um, so I mean that's just my own personal opinion. I hope I'm wrong. Uh, so I don't really have any interest in selling ebooks because to me it's it's a completely different product. It's it's something completely different than a book. I mean it's it's got the same words and it's got you know the intellectual component, but the other half of it's completely missing. So it doesn't really interest me in any way. Um, I guess books are the aesthetic appeal of books is a big uh, thing to me. So. Um, yeah, that's that's my take on it. Um, I completely agree about the aesthetic appeal of books. It's tremendously important. And I think that that's part of what fuels us as used book, a place to, to acquire used books, because um, some of them are made to an entirely different standard. And that's a very important feature to a lot of the people who patronize us. Uh, one thing I would add about Libro Schmibros is we're really quite unique sitting up here. And, and I don't know if I can say this loudly enough. We're not a bookstore, really. We are not owners. We are directors. Uh, David is founder of a nonprofit. 
part of our mission is a mission around literacy, which is getting good books into people's hands. Um, but in some senses, even in the sales tax debate, we're, we're exempt. That's the honest truth. That doesn't mean we don't have passionate feelings about it, and you can guess what they are. <laughs> but um, but, but it's, uh, it's coming from a slightly different philosophy and perspective. And if I can outline a couple points of it, it's like this. Uh, we're in a neighborhood that's a technology desert. So e-books uh, wouldn't be immediately viable for our local patrons. And in this brief experience we have of franchise, our, our temporary setting. I, I hesitate to say pop-up at the hammer because that seems to imply it's, it's, it was tiny and quick and easy to do, none of which would be true. Um, I, I say installation and then I, I feel the meaning of it. But, but, um, but in this experience of having two stores, sure, um, there's, you know, there's, there's, there's a potentially a growing Libros patronage that would have the affluence for an e-reader. I don't know how that would work with our non-for-profit non business model. I imagine in some landscape it would, but I think it's never been our first impulse. I think what we love is actually um, getting the books and then passing them on. And we each have our own area of grabbiness around what comes our way and you know what we covet and want to sort of tuck under the counter if we possibly can. Um, but I, I, I would say that in the first instance, um, the answer is probably no for right now. Yeah, but David wants to say something. Uh, Wendy, were you asking about whether we want to be sellers of e-books or e-sellers of books? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, we try not to turn anybody away cavalierly, um, and I think I'm probably learning a lot of stuff tonight that will enable me to give them a more informed answer, but I don't think the answer is going to be, uh, sure, plug into that shelf over there and you'll be downloading a book anytime soon. I think that another thing that sort of comes out in this in this whole discussion with with all of us sort of sitting up here is that um, you know really the huge benefit that all of us have um, is the passion that we infuse behind whatever project it is that we're working in. Um, you know that's something that thus far um, maybe maybe in comments on blogs I've encountered, but for the most part in terms of a recommendation, um, you know I, I I'm I there's very little that compares to um, sitting. Or being in the same room with somebody who's really, really excited about a book. You know, like for example, um, there's a book that came out a couple weeks ago called *The Art of Fielding* that I read early and was really excited for, and was telling customers about months before it was even available. I had one customer who came back and said, "What was that book you were telling me about? Is it available yet?" And I was like, "No, but come on back." You know, and being excited is uh, is is something that is actually really good for business model. And I don't know if, if anyone uh, you know, has any stories about that or, um, you know, how, in addition to being excited, because it's also a lot of hard work, uh, how, do, how do you balance those two and manage to channel them all into to moving forward? Anyone? Can I say that? Um, sure. Hard work takes adrenaline and excitement provides adrenaline. I agree with that. And I would add to it that... When I think about um, 
bookstores. I think that they're uh, spaces that have a lot of comparison to a theater, a classroom, a temple. Uh, I mean, they're, they're analogous spaces, meaning people are there for a kind of transmission of culture. And, and it's a person-to-person -person activity in the first instance. It, there's, there's a ritual around it. Um, and it is, uh, however, you know, introverted the, you know, typical, the, the stereotype of the book person may be of wanting to curl up with what we've got. Uh, we like to um, look at each other in, in that moment and talk about it, hear what someone else has to say. Uh, and it's a fun thing to do. I mean, they're fun places and fun spaces and uh, one of the horrifying thoughts that I have is you know how would you ever uh, if, if you know for raising a generation that gets everything electronically how would they ever know how to behave I mean are they going to treat it like a library if they happened to wander into one of these or you know what, what happens the world goes dark I, I don't know did anybody see that story just a couple of days ago, that Canadian professor who, who conducted studies uh, actually quantifying the, the high degree to which the reading, not just of books, but especially of fiction, um, leads to empathy for your fellow man? It's pretty damn remarkable. I mean, it's something we've all suspected for years, but I mean, there's actually starting to be some numbers behind it. Well, uh, in 2008, uh, I, a story hour program I was offering at Vox Pop in Brooklyn won an award from New York Magazine for Best Under the Radar Kids Hang. <laughs> and I, the, the, uh, the, the blurb said, you wouldn't expect that an anarchist bookstore in Brooklyn would be a great place to bring your kids. But, And I have been doing story hours in bookstores since the mid-80s. And um, there was a period when I was doing six story hours a week. And my story hours were well attended. I'm a children's theater actor. And um, that is a way that you generate excitement among young people about bookstores. And uh, last week, a young woman walked into my store at the Eric Carle Museum and introduced herself. Uh, she said that she had been coming to my story hours in the 80s. And uh, she had actually was attending Hampshire College. And she wanted to thank me for uh, you know for my bookstore and for our programs. And uh, that's that's you know such a wonderful experience to, to meet her. And she's there. She's all self-possessed and grown up. And, and uh, you know I'm I was just buzzing. That's that's the best thing. It would seem that although there are some commonalities with uh, with all your experiences, um, but you, like you say, a big thrust is the literary, the literature, uh, or the literacy aspect of it. You want to keep the roof over your head, so you're more perhaps um, thinking about the commerce aspect, and you. Um, some of the events, you know, I mean, like Amazon, they want to make a buck. I don't think, I've never seen them do an event, I've never seen, you know. And right, if you recall, when they, they started out in business, they were the, the biggest bookstore in the known universe, but now they don't even really concentrate on books. I think it's, uh, Kindle is their big thing, and, and they're probably the biggest electronic um, online retailer in the known universe. But, uh, I, if it wasn't making them a buck, I don't think they'd even be involved. 
Amazon build itself as Earth's biggest bookstore. They never build themselves as Earth's fastest bookstore. I remember when they first started to rise, I actually Googled around, uh, the internet is good for some things, and found Earth's fastest bookstore. It's called Chenab, and I think it's somewhere in India or nearby. Because um, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to like, you know, get a decommissioned bookmobile and, and bring books to people immediately when they wanted them. And even today, when I was hanging out at Libros on a day we were, you know, ostensibly closed, somebody called up, really do have to, to get my own personal phone to stop ringing when people want books, but I haven't gotten around to that yet. And this woman in East LA really needed a copy of Catcher in the Rye. Um, and so I, I hung around longer than I planned to. Um, and, and when I finally had to leave and she hadn't shown up yet, I just sort of were, were blessed and cursed with a rather uh, tall gap between the bottom of our door and the sidewalk, uh, which when it rains really heavily is not an advantage. Um, but, but today was great. I just sort of left a copy of Catcher in the Rye broken out and I'll get back and it'll be gone and I won't know if it was her or somebody else or maybe one of you for all I know. But near as I can tell when last I left it, it was certainly, uh, certainly still there. You're no phony. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, what do you guys, uh, if there's anything else, anyone else on the panel have anything they want to be sure to fit in before we jump into maybe some questions from the audience and the question that we posed at the beginning, which you guys aren't off the hook on yet for? Anyone else on the panel? Oh, all right, let's open it up. First, I just want to say that that point about the instant gratification part is really true for, for me, which is that, like, I, I'm in here today, you know, sort of accidentally at this discussion because I had a book and I, I didn't want to order it online and wait for it to get delivered or pay extra for it to, like, I, I wanted to come in and find it right now because I was thinking about it and I didn't think I was going to, which I'm sure is maybe something obvious that lots of people talk about with bookstores, but just since you were noting it, it's, it's a really big deal. And, um, but the question I had was just, is there, has there been a change at all from the bankruptcy of like borders or, you know, the fact that these, um, and I came in a little late, so I might have missed the, this was already discussed, but the, how these, um, you know, the, the chain bookstores are not doing well. And so I know that there's still this sort of unfair competition with, um, with Amazon, but then, but, but is there an uptick from the fact that there's fewer and fewer of those stores available? Um, well, I'd like to answer this because my book actually was released on July 19th, which was the date that Borders announced that they were going to liquidate. So I have pointed out to people that they saw my book come out and scared them and they folded. So, so just, just real quick for, uh, for the recording that we have going, uh, the question was whether um, the closing of the second biggest chain uh, of bookstores has had an impact on the rest of us. It has certainly had an impact on the public perception of the possibility of independent bookselling working in this country. And again, I'm speaking first because I, I've been on the road. So I've been doing events, and I've been talking to uh, interviewers and the media, and um, the and I'm sure any of us who've been reading, you know, the the the, the roundups, you know, in San Francisco or in Washington D.C. or in, in Milwaukee, there are, there have been roundups in many newspapers of the independent bookstores that are here, 
Borders has gone out of business, but look what we do have in our town that you probably forgot about. And so the media is paying attention now to the bookstores who are left and paying attention to them in a very positive way, pointing out that they survived and isn't it a good thing that these guys are, are here after all. Look at this. Borders is gone, but these people are here. So there's a change in, uh, in the attitude and I think it's a national change. And it's, so there's appreciation of bookstores that stayed the course and, and you know stuck it out. There's also a sense, and this is again something I'm seeing at these book events that I'm doing, there's always, at every one of these book events, somebody comes up afterwards and says, well, I'm thinking about who's <laughs> here. I've been thinking about opening a bookstore, and it's usually young people, uh, and I think your point about the, the, the employment picture in this country is terrible. Uh, you know, why not take a risk? You, you said, you said that opening a bookstore had no risk. Do you realize for decades people you know, would, would say opening a bookstore, that's so risky, but you perceive it as having no risk. So I think that it really has changed. And of course Barnes & Noble also has cut back their shelf space for books very dramatically. Now they're selling you know, uh, games and uh, puzzles and uh, all the kinds of other sidelines on, uh, on their analysts, uh, in the investor call that they did last week, they pointed out that, oh, toys and games, sales are up. You know, we're really happy about this, and, and they've, they're ba backing away from books, too. So there's a, there's a change in the wind, in my opinion. Anecdotally, um, we have been chasing down closing borders in the last uh, few days because in Boyle Heights, we are going to be moving shop. Uh, we have leased a new space in Mariachi Plaza and look for its opening in the next few months, but we're trying to outfit it. So we've been looking at those really, really, really cheap, cheap, cheap bookcases that Borders needs to get rid of in their liquidation. And um, hearing from the store managers, they're all gone. People are setting up yep. bookshops. It's wonderful. And by the way, if you know of a Borders that has some yeah. <laughs> viable shelf, not the electric kind, we need the plain kind, please give us a call. Let us know. Yeah, this is a moment of tremendous opportunity for independent book selling around the country. The, the only analogy I can think of for it is, if anybody remembers, in 1972, I think it was, when Krikorian bought MGM and sold off their entire archive. Basically, you know, they emptied the vaults and they had a great big garage sale on Washington Boulevard and there are still movie memorabilia concerns around the country that are making hay out of what came out of those file folders and I think that's exactly what's happening right now. People are picking the bones of borders and they're going to be opening their own shops and I say good luck and Godspeed to them and, and if anybody wants one I've got the perfect name for a new store. I mean, well, Libros Mibros is kind of a cool name, too, I guess, but uh, brick and mortar books. <laughs> B&M? Yeah. Um, <laughs> for, for us, we had a couple of border shops that closed that weren't too far from here, and uh, I was sort of trying to pay attention right afterwards to see whether or not we all of a sudden had a whole bunch more people in the store. Um, and I was kind of surprised actually because it didn't, I, I didn't notice an immediate change. Um, I tried to pay attention to what people were asking for to see whether there were you know, different types of books that we didn't usually have that all of a sudden people were interested in. Didn't see that much until come mid-August, let's say, 
May when the school year started and all of a sudden a lot more students, a lot more teachers, a lot more librarians are coming um, you know and, and asking either for stuff on their class lists or stuff for their libraries and that's one of the first sort of real measurable um, you know turnings to skylight that I've seen which is which is pretty great again um, but I would agree completely with uh, with Andrew that the the media twist um, you know there's been so many stories um, on you know on news media on NPR and the in the newspapers about um, you know what it is that the stores that are surviving are doing and that's you know that's a really great thing for for a lot of us so is there anyone else in you know it's funny about borders because I grew up in Ann Arbor and <laughs> grew up going to the the original Borders store, and that was a store that did everything right from the customer's perspective. And it really is a, that was a great idea that just has turned completely sour. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the Borders brothers sold their company for $120 million plus to Kmart in 1991. And the reason that they sold their company at a time when it had about 10, I think about 10 stores at the time, was because Barnes & Noble was, ex was ex developing a superstore chain. and. You know, it was grow or die for them, and they were not the ones who were going to grow it. They knew they, I think that the Borders Brothers knew they were not going to develop a multi-billion dollar company. And Kmart wanted to buy so that they could protect Walden Books, which they had already bought. And so it, it was, it, but that was a fabulous project, that Borders Bookstore. It really was just wonderful for decades. Was the Crown Superstore in contention at that point? Uh, yes, they were, and but again, they were playing defense. Everybody was was slower than uh, uh, you know. Barnes and Noble uh, was very, very aggressive, and uh, the bookstore world. Uh, it, I wouldn't say it's a gentleman's business. Some, sometimes they say publishing is a gentleman's business, but the but the the level of you know business energy that was driving Barnes and Noble in the '80s was out of proportion to what its competitors might have expected. And when they raised the, you know, the $270 million uh, with junk bond sales and the, you know, the go-go market in the, the 80s, you know, no one expected that that all was going to happen. And they really caught their competitors flat-footed, and that's what happened to Crown. They did not, uh, they weren't even as aggressive, they were aggressive, but they weren't as aggressive as that. So I guess that it pays in the book business to go out and try to kill everybody else, at least for a while. But, but speaking to your question, that, that Borders, um, that was a great bookstore, and, and, it, and I think the biggest thing about that bookstore was that the, uh, the staff was incredible. I mean, they just, every, everybody who worked there was a writer or was, you know, had, was an English major, but it, everybody was, was really bright, everybody was really knowledgeable, and, and they loved talking about books. That's, it was just they just communicated that that energy, uh, the excitement about literature. So. I don't want to go to anybody's head here, but I noticed a similar trait amongst the personnel at Skyline. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's true. Why do you think we wanted to have this panel here? <laughs> um, I I think Barnes and Noble and Borders um, being general interests. Operations, uh, I think that perhaps that has limited uh, um, possibilities for the future as well. What I what I notice is, um, and although you've got a 
pretty broad scope here, for instance, but uh, but I think it's really a, a kind of not genre, but a, a niche market for. I mean, your your clientele like this eclectic mix that you have, and you have a lot of you know cool stuff. I mean, it's. Uh, I think that's going to be the trend. You're going to you're going to have customers, and it may be a smaller um, pot to to pick from, but uh, but they're going to like a particular kind of book. And if you if you specialize in that, you'll do well. Uh, I don't know. Your what? Your general interest, especially you. You know what? Apropos of that, um, I was I was developing a, a pilot for a book show on KPCC that, that still am sort of that had me talking to Katie who used to run Village Books until about a month ago uh, in Pacific Palisades, and uh, she um, she was asking herself uh, as she closed up shop, um, whether if she had specialized, if she hadn't been a general interest bookstore, if she'd been uh, a kids bookstore, or I guess uh, a genre bookstore like Mystery Mysterious Galaxy, which you know has thrived in San Diego for many years and is about to open a Redondo Beach outlet, whether she'd have done better. Um, I don't know. Um, we specialize in good books. When people come in, you know, and of course the first thing you ask them, I mean, I'd be curious to know the first thing you ask them, but for us it's always some variation on what do you like to read? And they, you know, half of them say everything. And my answer is usually, well, that's our specialty. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I think there's still room for a general interest bookstore. I think if you narrow yourself too much, you're scaring people away. But I think it has to have some kind of one of the things that uh, makes all three of us here notable today is that we created a you know we created books a bookstore a bookstores that sort of have a narrative to them or sort of uh, stick out from you know your everyday business uh, where you know people know there's a story behind it you know it, it adds personality to the community that you're in and you know people enjoy that I mean that was definitely one of the things that I read Rebel Bookseller when the first edition came out in 2005 um, and that was definitely one of the things. Uh, there was a small part in there um, that talked about. Uh, oh, I can't remember if it was. I can't remember. But anyways, what, something I took from the book, which may or may not actually be in there, but was the idea of creating an experience for people. You know, it's going to take them out of their mundane, everyday life. You know, you know, you, you create something that it's not just a store. They go in and buy a commodity, but it's a place where they can go in and and enter into another storyline that's happening. And it, it you know excites people's imagination, and they get to meet other people who are partaking in the same story. You know, if you just pay attention to the aesthetics of your store and what you're carrying, and the people who work there, then you know you can create an experience for people that you know is going to mean something to them and change their life in some way. And I think all of us have sort of done that in some way, whether consciously or unconsciously. It's like so. a big, uh, one of the hugely desirable things uh, for, for a successful. Website is that sense of community. Mm -hmm. you know, 
Well, and, you know, the, the telling of good stories, whether it's in a book or through people or face-to-face -face or, you know, however it is. I, I like that sort of people like becoming involved in that narrative. Um, this bookstore, many of you may know and some of you may not, was a bookstore before it was Skylight called Chatterton's. And a lot of customers come in here and, you know, were customers of Chatterton's when it was here up and through, I think it was about 1994, and then, um, you know, continue to come to Skylight. And being part of that even longer narrative than the names skylight is like a really important thing in terms of the community and the community has changed so much since then from from what I hear um, you know and 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 people are still really thrilled to to be you know on that pathway moving forward so I, I think telling stories is something that we're all going to keep doing for sure <laughs> Um, well, I think that we're sort of about ready to, to wind up and, and shift into our little reception mode. Um, does anyone want to uh, want to jump out on the, the audience participation question that we posed at the beginning, which was, uh, now what is the first thing that makes you say, now that is a good bookstore? What is the first thing that you would put in an empty bookstore that you were coming on? Uh, does anyone have any? Uh, I have about 20 responses from people online that I can share, but does anyone have anything that they want to throw out from the audience? The staff, yeah. Cash a cash register. Good thing to start with. <laughs> Deep drawers. Deep drawers. Yeah, on, on, online, a lot of people says a friendly, knowledgeable staff, a variety of staff recommendations, um, a tree. <laughs> uh, I can't recommend tree or cat because it seems that I'm biased then. Um, another person online said it, uh, having a unique shelving category is something that sticks out in a bookstore, in an independent bookstore specifically. Uh, and they mentioned our uh, our section that shall not be named, uh, which has merely symbols on the sign, uh, which which you can see on the opposite side of Los Angeles and California back there. If you want to try to guess what it is, that's one of our uh, one of our unique ones. Anything else that anyone uh, notices first? Speaking to the idea of a bookstore having a unique personality, and we've been going from bookstore to bookstore because I'm touring with Andy and. Um, I, I love it that every bookstore we go to, even though they're indies and they're the kind of store that would carry Andy's book in the first place, they all have some, some wonderful books in there that I haven't seen in any of the others. Mm. And you know, in chain store often there's the same books everywhere. Every time you go into the store, they have the same books up front, the same things they're emphasizing. But in indie store, you, you can always find something unique and mm. wonderful mm -hmm. that you know is a wonderful book that you wouldn't have found online. You just mm. wouldn't have heard it. Another thing is events, and not just you know off the rack events that the publisher was sending a writer around. If publishers even still do that very much anymore, but events that show some imagination, like this one, uh, on a good day, like the stuff that we do. I mean, you know, we're we're doing an all-day marathon read of On the Road on September the 22nd uh, in the in the in the Westwood uh, shop at the Hammer. Um, you know, so we're, we're we're doing an evening about Thomas Pynchon's L.A. trilogy on September the 29th than Boyle Heights. I mean, you know, you what's that? Uh, says here, expect special guests, but I don't know what that means. So, I mean, you know, just anything that, that you know, shows there's a pulse there can't hurt. There's another thing, too. Uh, uh, I, uh, I point uh, uh, to the one that gives me a lot of hope for the future is that no matter how advanced the e-books get and how many Kindles they sell or whatever, 
I can't envision that there'll ever be um, any sign of cannibalization. <laughs> <laughs> Events are, you know. So somebody says events are great and uh, signed books are even better. Uh, another th another comment from the audience was uh, was that uh, independent bookstores have books that you won't see anywhere else. Even if you go to bookstores all the time, each store is going to have their unique kind of titles that jump out, and that's agreed. Another, do you have something? I just think the uh, the space to read in is mm -hmm. because it is one of the difference between the ebook and the uh, you know, Yeah, yeah. And I also think it's why it's important to have good magazines. Space to read in. Uh, um, I, I have a comment, which uh, um, I asked Bill Ayers, who's a friend of mine, to write a an afterword to this book, describing his experience on book tour in September of 2001. He had just published Fugitive Days, which was his memoir of his life as a weatherman, and um, because it came out right around, essentially it came out just after 9/11, uh, he became a whipping boy as our domestic terrorist, as sort of a symbol for Osama bin Laden, and um, his uh, his. Many of his appearances were canceled, but the independent bookstores continued to host him even uh, under threat. And uh, so, I, and I attended uh, his event at the David Schwartz bookstore in Milwaukee, where David was receiving uh, angry telephone calls, and there were radio talk show hosts demanding that uh, his store be boycotted, and he was getting calls threatening his staff and threatening to burn down his store. And he ran the Bill Ayers event, and so uh, Bill wrote a, an appreciation of David Schwartz in this book. And so the standing up for free speech is something that I think is a real uh, a critical role that independent bookstores play uh, in defiance of social uh, uh, possible punishment. So um, that's a very important thing in a good bookstore. And didn't that also, wasn't the Salman Rushdie book, there's a Salman Rushdie book that, that uh, the bookstore uh, was threatened? Well, Cody's was bombed when it, uh, it kept satanic verses in the window. And um, actually, that's another tie-in. The, the foreword to this book was written by Ed Morrow, who was the president of the American Booksellers Association in 1989. And when uh, Ayatollah Khomeini pronounced the fatwa on Salman Rushdie, and book bookstores were threatened uh, to, uh, with attack if they displayed uh, satanic verses. Walden Books, which was at the time the largest chain bookstore in the, com in the country, withdrew satanic verses from display across the country. But independent bookstores did not, almost universally. They put it into the window, and Cody's was bombed, and Crocs and Brentano's in Chicago was bombed, and Ed Morrow, uh, who was the president of the association, was on the McNeil Lehrer News Hour uh, the night of the Cody's bombing, I think, to sort of say, he said, independent booksellers are an independent lot. <laughs> and you know, they, they, they didn't like the idea of being told what to do. So uh, you're right, the, uh, that, that was uh, another high point. Well, and that actually links them to, to sort of end with a, a quote. I think it's from somewhere in your book. I just finished it. It's all blurring together. It's somewhere there. Um, but but you know, we all focus on the the independent nature of all of of all of us independent book uh, booksellers and each having our own personality and all of that. But you you threw out the word interdependent as well, and I think that that's something that you know, like we can all be on a panel. We all have very different stores. Um, you know, we different models of selling books and all of that. But you know, there's there's always been sort of a, an interconnectedness that is 
you know, inspiring and, and just goes to show that uh, being interdependent is almost as important as being independent. So. I got my first taste of that the other night. Um, Josh's bookstore is now the last bookstore downtown because Metropolis is closing at the end of the month. But having having done a book event, the first book event ever at Metropolis uh, seven years ago, um, Julie there and I decided I, I could be the last one too. Um, only we were afraid they weren't going to have enough copies of my WPA Guide to LA for an event that I was doing there last Sunday. So I came here. Um, and and Skylight had five copies of, of, of the book. Um, and I was ready to buy them, but they said, we'll just borrow them, you know, and, and bring them back if they don't sell or, you know, reimburse us if they do. And I can't describe to you how that felt to me because, I mean, as a loyal customer of Skylight for many years, as a, as a customer of bookstores in Los Angeles, both extant and extinct, uh, all my life, um, as, as the founder of a shop with its second branch in Westwood that has a beautiful mural now of a blow-up of a map of LA bookstores past and present on one wall during our events with, you know, bookmarks uh, denoting the locations of, of many of them. Um, I just, I sort of felt like I'd been jumped into the fraternity. Um, it's really all one store. We're just branches. <laughs> All right, and with that, we'll say thank you very much for everyone to our panelists. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.